All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucksters? What the fuck to pusses? I don't know where that one came from. How are you? Uh, it's Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. I'm speaking to you as a half-vaxxer. I'm a half-vaxxer right now, looking to be a full-vaxxer uh, in a few weeks. Feel good to be half-vaxxed. I don't know what it gets me. It seems uh, it seems like there's some discrepancy about two weeks after the first shot of the of the vax, I got the Moderna, the Moderna, Moderna, the uh, the juice. I got the Moderna juice. I got that hit. I heard it was fifty two percent protection after two weeks. Then someone said, I don't know. They got a new angle on it. Might be up to eighty four percent. I don't know. Can I just take the middle and and walk around feeling like I'm about sixty eight percent? protected or what do i do i'll wait it out i think that what i'm going to do two weeks after my second dose is maybe i'll go visit my mommy in florida yeah my mother who's fully vaxxed at this point she keeps asking if she can come out here let me rephrase that she keeps threatening to come out here now it's not like i don't have room for her i can fly her out even but to be honest with you I don't know what to do with my mother after a day. And I've talked about this before. I think if you have kids to here, look, here's a kid. Look here. Look at the baby. Hold the baby. Yeah. Take the baby to the mall. Let grandma take you. I don't got any of that. I got a couple of cats. And then, you know, after an hour of conversation, I'm sort of done. And that's like, that's day one. And then by day two, I'm starting to feel queasy. Like literally physically ill. I don't think it's anything she does on purpose. I don't know if it's because I'm emotionally incapacitated because of her. I don't know. I'm not angry. I'm not saying this in judgment. I'm just saying that I can't have her here for more than a day without becoming physically ill. I'm not me. I'm not meaning that as a negative thing or as a hurtful thing. It's just what happens. So what I'm going to do then, because it's been a while since I've seen her, is I'll get fully vaxxed. And then uh, I'll, I'll wait a couple of weeks and I'll fly down there for a bit in her terrain, in her environment where she's distracted, where she has a car, where she can do her Pilates class or whatever, walk her dogs, go to Publix, go to Costco, go eat at the place. I don't know. Is Florida fully open? What's happening? Do you even need to wear a, a mask in Florida? Is it, uh, <laughs> is it, is, is Florida just a, a chaotic COVID wonderland? I don't know where it's at, but I know my mother's there and I know we'll both be fully vaxxed and I think that'd be a nice thing to do. Go visit my mommy for a few days and get out, get out, but keep it on her turf and then at least there's distractions. I can stay at a hotel. It's going to work out. Look, I love my mother, but only for a day. That's not true. I, you understand what I'm saying. Look, I've got this new kitten, had some problems, but let me, let me, do, let me do what they say, as they say, set up the show for today. Today, I uh, talked to Eddie Wong. Uh, he's, uh, he's a writer, a restaurateur, and now a director. He uh, has his new movie out. It's called Boogie. It's now in theaters. He's the owner of the restaurant Bauhaus, and uh, Fresh Off the Boat is his memoir, and it's what the show 
was based on. And uh, we talk a lot about uh, anti-Asian discrimination and the pressures put on Asians in America. Now, we spoke a couple weeks ago. This is before the shooting in Atlanta. Uh, in the and this was before the shooting in the Atlanta area, which is why it doesn't come up when we're talking about anti-Asian discrimination and abuse, uh, which is clearly, I would say, worse and worsening, and uh, took a horrendous, uh, violent, murderous turn. Uh, but that was not in the conversation because it had not happened. But the conversation is um, rooted in that. But let's, uh, before we get to that, let's talk about Sammy the Cat, if we could. You know, I've got this kitten, and I got to be honest with you, and I feel like I say that a lot. We're all lucky. I'm lucky. Everyone's lucky I'm not a father. I just, uh, and I don't, it's not my bag. I don't think about it. I don't regret not having kids. I don't judge people that have kids. I've done jokes about people with kids, but they're not you know, negative about kids per se. I'm just not cut out for it. And speaking of my mother, as I did earlier, and about the nauseousness and about the queasiness and about the just discomfort, I can see it in my parenting skills with this fucking kitten. I don't think I've had a kitten this young. Sammy the Red is, he's going to, he's between seven and eight weeks old. And yesterday or the day before yesterday, I woke up and it was like, I don't even know he just wasn't responding. He wasn't energetic. He looked sad. Now, I've never had a kitten this young. I don't realize, you know, Kit, my friend Kit gave me the cat a few days ago. I don't realize they got to sleep like 15 to 20 hours a fucking day, really. I, I think I expect kittens to jump up and down and be excited and bite my hand and, and, and chase things and everything. I think that I thought that's how they are all the time. I don't have any memory of my kittens because my, when I had monkey and La Fonda and and Boomer, they were all like two, three months old and they were out of their fucking minds. They were feral cats, just completely crazy. This one's a sweet little guy. Never, uh, never out in the wild, never had to eat, eat, eat garbage, never had to wrestle a lizard at uh, six weeks old, but he, he may be tired. But yesterday I swear he was sick. He might've had a fever. So I spun out, you know, I went to the vet and it turns out he does have a fever, 104 fever. He was limping. I was like, oh, what, he's limping. What's going on? And I guess I didn't realize. I don't know if I'm emotionally prepared for this shit. In general, the amount of worry I invest in everything around me. I, I'm a worrier. I, you know, and, I, and that's how I was brought up. I was brought up with extreme panic and worry. In, in in the place of nurturing uh, emotional love with some boundaries just just panic you know call call us if you're going to be late where are you what's going on what are you doing are you okay is everything okay just worry my mother's like that and uh, I don't know my father I, I don't know his mother was a worrier but but I'm just panicking about things all the time I think the worst immediately and and you know what? Honestly, the worst is the worst has happened to me. And and I didn't anticipate it, but I was worried while it was happening. And it happened in the room that I've got this kitten in. So there's just triggers abound, man. So I took him to the vet 
Dr. Doc Modesto McLean over at uh, Gateway. Great guy. His brother-in-law works over at Fish King. I'm, I'm learning the people. And, uh, yeah, I brought this kitten in. I told him what was up. He felt a little hot. He's lethargic. I think he hurt his leg. I don't know what's happening. Is he dying? And I was about to fucking cry in the parking lot of the vet when I chased Modesto down before, as he was entering work before he had his doc shirt on, you know, freaking out about this kitten. He's like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, he looks like a little guy. What's going on? I'm like, I just he can't die. I don't want him to die. I can't take it. But then, you know, it was interesting because I had never really talked to Modesto, but he's standing there. I'm panicking that uh, the Sammy kitten, Sammy Red, is going to die. And he starts telling me about why he's a vet, kind of, because he used to grew up down the street from Gateway. And they used to bring the family dog there. He'd been going there since the 70s. In the 70s, Gateway was there with the Dr. Feldman. I had no idea. I've been going there for 20 years to Gateway. And and he's by far the best doc I've had over there. And he thinks that's why he became a vet, because his mom, they used to bring the family dog there. He had this this dog that the family didn't sound like they took care of it that great, just let it run wild. He, he had this weird detail. He says, my mom used to feed the dog spaghetti. But he, he, he was just sort of reminiscing and tracking that as to why he might be a vet because of that place, the childhood experience about it. And meanwhile, I'm like, my kitten is, uh, my kitten I think is, it might die. Can you, uh-huh, my kitten is dying. Can you please, uh... but I didn't do that. I, I listened and it was good. It was interesting. I'm glad I we connected like that. I wish I wasn't so freaked out and spun out about the, the kitten, but it turns out he has $700 later. Um, we found the, the leg wasn't broken. Uh, his blood work looked great. No leukemia, no uh, FIV. He got. He has no sign of uh, viral infection. He was given some pain reliever and some antibiotics just in case. And uh, and yeah, and and sent home with a little new kitten package, new patient package. And I freaked out until later that night. Kit came over and he's jumping around. He's flying around. He's, I think he just likes Kit better than me. And I, now I'm in that zone. I'm worried about the cat. I'm worried he doesn't like me. I'm worried he's picking up on my 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 intensity. I'm worried he's picking up on my panic. I'm worried that like you know I'm too much for the cat. Like he can't handle me. All my cats are fucking freaked out. Cute cat. Hope he lives. But man, it triggered everything. Triggered my my mother, triggered bad parenting, triggered why I don't have kids, triggered uh, the passing of Lynn, triggered, you know, just a, uh, wow, God damn it. Some people aren't cut out for the parenting. I can handle it. I've handled a lot of cats, but I have a specific style. It's hard for me to soften up just right and be open without getting sad. That's the other, that's the other thing. P poor Sammy's like, why does this sad man keep touching me? Why does the sad man keep wanting to hold me why is this sad man back in here trying to get me to eat food at the very least this sad man should take a look at me and realize this is joy this is what joy looks like sad man he's having the exact experience that i had with my father one thing i, I realized uh just the other day it's weird the, the thing that stays young inside you is your things that remain unfinished let me explain that. Yeah, I talked to my friend Al the other day and we hadn't talked in a while. And he's like, you know, when this is over, when we all get vaccinated, we should have dinner and make it a weekly thing. You know, there's all these things where it's like, I got to do that, man. I got to I gotta build that thing in the yard. You know, I got to get rid of those things. I got I to gotta 
make more time for my friends. I got to call that guy. I, why don't we talk enough? Why am I not doing that thing upstairs? Why, why, how come I don't have solar panels? When am I going to learn how to play chess? What, you know, all these things spring eternal. As the body ages, your inability to get the things you want to get done or see the people you want to see because you enjoy them stays the same. So lock in on some of those because you don't want to be 90 and be like, how come when we never went on that hike? You remember we were going to hike because I was hiking. That was 50 years ago. I know, but we were going to go. We talked about it every week. We talked about it. Well, it's gone now. We can't hike now. Do you want to walk? No. Well, it's nice to see you. Now my, my daughter dropped me off. Well, what are we going to do? Let's just sit. All right. Wait, we should have hiked. Remember when we should have hiked? Yeah, we should have eaten dinner more. We should have. What is this? A Billy Crystal one-man show? Anyway, Eddie Wong is here. Was here. I talked to him. Wasn't here. His directorial debut, his film, Boogie, which he wrote and directed, is now in theaters and will be available on uh, VOD at the end of the month. Uh, we did speak a couple weeks ago before the shooting in the Atlanta area, which is why it doesn't, uh, why we don't talk about it when we're talking about anti-Asian discrimination and abuse. Also, we talk about Lynn Shelton a bit, and I, and I don't know if it's clear in this conversation, Lynn was the director of the pilot of Fresh Off the Boat, which Eddie had had some issues with many of the people involved in that. But he had nothing but good things to say about Lynn, and it was it was nice to hear that and nice to talk to him about it. Um, and this is me and Eddie Wong. Were you sick from your second shot? Is that what happened? Yeah, it's uh, the second shot really takes you out. And it's weird because everyone tells you you're going to be fine miraculously. And, and yeah. while you're in it, you're just like, oh, I don't, I don't know. I may die, you know? Oh, it was <laughs> you were that sick? Like, did it, you couldn't breathe and shit or no? No, I could breathe. Well, I didn't have the energy to breathe. It was, oh, it was, oh, it was, was like oh, it just shut you thing. down. Yeah. I uh, I watched the uh, I watched the movie. Awesome. And uh, I liked the movie. You know what it reminded me of though? It reminded me like it, it made me nostalgic and sort of homesick for New York. Although I didn't understand anything anyone was saying, and it was never my <laughs> life. <laughs> but 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 it definitely I I remember watching those people. I remember yeah. walking by and, yeah. and seeing like, hey, those are those urban kids having a good time. Yeah, I don't know no, what the I fuck love they're that, doing, man. I, yeah. I love that. That's the, that's actually the reaction like I really want. So I'm I'm excited to talk to you about it. It definitely brought me back to New York. Like I lived there from, uh, geez, I was there on and off from '89 to 2002. You know, yeah. So I was there, and then I was there earlier as well. But oh, it, it wow. really felt that. I really felt the uh, the New Yorkness of it. Yeah, and the like the New Yorkness that we don't explain anything for anybody. You know. That, right, exactly, and there was a there's a language to uh, kids that you know, especially that uh, you know th that goes back. You're going back a little bit, but then even current language that I don't know what the fuck anyone's saying. And then on top of that, <laughs> you know, you have uh, a way of writing in your own sort of slang, almost uh, like yeah. you, your writing is very expressive and specific. So it's like two layers of yeah. like, what was that? Do we need subtitles here? <laughs> I know they're speaking English, but what the fuck is going on? 
<laughs> you know, for my director's cut at one point, I had subtitled the the assistant coach, the white guy with the hat on all the time because yeah, he's kind of yeah. mush mouth. And I yeah. was like, man, it'd be pretty funny to subtitle a white guy that's mush mouth. <laughs> that would be that would be funny out. if that's the only thing that you uh, that you subtitle. Yeah, but like. Where did you ride out most of the pandemic? Have you been in town the whole time? No, I was actually in Taiwan for about 11 and a half months. I, I was in Taiwan and then I just got back like January 15th to, to you know, do the movie promo. Do you have family still in Taiwan? No, my, my family all went back to China because we're kind of, we have that immigration pattern of the Chinese that lost the civil war, went to Taiwan, and then we came to America. But, right. Um, my parents and brothers all went back to China because there's more opportunity there now. So they're in China? Yeah, they all, my whole family, I'm the only one left in America. It's crazy. When did they go back? They went back, well, my parents, my poor parents went back January 7th, right before everyone discovered like coronavirus. So yeah. they went back then. My brothers have been back there for uh, two years now, so- they, they so did did anyone get the corona? No, luckily my whole family followed the rules. They stayed really safe. No one got the corona. Yeah, that's that's interesting, man. So like, but that was never the plan. I mean, your parents wanted to to be here, didn't they? Ultimately, yeah, they wanted to be here, and it was really crazy because they lived with me while I was in post for the film, and it just got too crazy. Like. I came home, the dogs had like pissed on my art and like my yeah. mom had rearranged everything. And and my parents are really funny. If they moved everything from Orlando, like they brought an expired brick of cheese. <laughs> and they brought they brought empty bottles of wine that they drank that they were like, they're nice bottles. And they put all the shit in my house. And I got home one day and all their workout equipment that they couldn't bear to throw away, they put in my room. So then uh -huh. there was an elliptical and like weights next to my bed. I'm like, mom, you, you turned my room into a gym while I was at work. And I was like, this, we have to have a talk. So then my parents were like, look, it seems like we're just, we're two in your hair. Your brother's willing to help us get an apartment in China. We'll go to China, but like, can you hang on to our stuff? So now- they have a bunch of stuff here, but they went to China. But when did you like, see, now I'm going to get, I'm going to confuse the movie with your life, you know, mm -hmm. like with your real life. So you grew up in Florida mostly? I grew up all over. I was uh, until nine years old in DC. And then from nine to about 22, I was in Orlando. And then from 22 all the way till 35, I was in New York. Were you, but you were you born here? Yes, I was born in uh, like the D.C. area, northern like uh, Fairfax County, Fairfax Hospital. So your parents were already here. Yes, my mom came as a seventeen-year-old, and my huh. dad came, I believe, as a twenty-five-year-old. But they didn't know each other. They met here. Not yeah. My dad met my mom at a house party. He heard some Taiwanese girls throwing a house party, so he showed up, and then he knocked yeah. my mom up at the house party. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Are you the oldest? Yeah, I'm the oldest. <laughs> so it was you, yeah. huh? Yeah, yeah. Pretty pretty much. They won't confirm, but they're like, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, it was, it was you. What were they doing in DC? My mom was a waitress at a Mexican restaurant called Anita's that I believe is still there. And then uh -huh. my dad was a waitress at a, his brother's restaurant. A and waiter? My dad was a student at the community college and my mom was a student at university of maryland wow and then it, they just kind of it, but how did you 
what did they end up sort of doing as adults? Um, my my mom's family ended up so it's very they have a very interesting story. After the the civil war in China, my mom's family fled to Taiwan. Now explain to me exactly the civil war. You mean the war which which war was that? Was that the the People's Revolution? Was that when when the the original um uh communist takeover or the pushback from the younger I I I just Sort of I love saw. that you know this. Yeah. So, you know, there's Sun Yat-sen in there, like the May 4th revolution and the, and yeah. the first one. Um, the war that, and, and then it became, the, the nationalists basically overthrew the dynasty. And yes. then it was Mao's war, basically, that, that took over. And our family was on the side against Mao, Chiang Kai-shek, and the Chinese nationalists. So they fled to Taiwan. And uh, when they okay. fled, my, my parents... My, my, not my parents, but my grandparents were yeah. on one of the last boats out to Taiwan. It got shipwrecked. They had to like find their kids on the, oh my on the God. shore. Yeah. And they ended up, my mom's family sold the equivalent of bagels, basically a mantle, which is just yeah. white bread. They just sold it on blankets under a bridge for quite some time huh. until this guy who would buy their bread every morning said, the family that works at my textile factory hasn't shown up for two weeks. Would you guys like to have a job? So they dropped the bread and they went and worked at the textile factory, learned how to do that. And they were like, we have enough family members to open our own textile factory. So they did it. And um, this is your mom's family. Yeah, my mom's family. So my mom's family had enough money so that she could go to school and go to America. My dad's family was you know, more poor. So my dad worked for his brother who was an engineer and uh, had a Chinese restaurant. It's very complicated. And my dad was at the community college. And, and so they met that way. But then my dad ended up working for my mom's family who ended up opening a furniture store in Northern Virginia called Better Homes that would sell things like Thomasville furniture and stuff sure. like that. Sure. Yeah. So they, so no more textiles. no, and no, and then when my dad graduated from college, he worked as like the manager of the store. So he's working in the furniture store. Yeah. Yeah, his in-laws gave him a gig. Yeah. Because yeah. he knocked your mother up. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And he got along <laughs> with my grandpa. Him him and my grandpa were like two peas in a pod. So they really got oh, really? along. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating to me the difference, and I think you you kind of touch on it in the movie and obviously in your book, that the immigrant experience uh is is similar in some ways, but so different. And we Americans in general, and I think uh, a lot of people know so little about China. And I've been there once. I did I did comedy in Beijing once. Whoa, what year? It was in the it was in probably in the nineties, the um, mid nineties. I went there for ex, expats. Some guy had a couple of gigs there. Uh, there was a gig in Beijing, and there was one in Hong Kong. Hong Kong. So I went there and I visited the Forbidden City and Tiananmen Square and I went to the Great Wall and I did the stuff. I saw the hutongs and, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. But I like I remember I, it was just a, it's it's a completely different world because there's they don't cater to Americans at all. No. So so like, you know, all I could the only thing that was identifiable was the Kentucky Fried Chicken logo. Everything else. <laughs> Which is the number one franchise in China. It's KFC goes crazy there. Right. So I saw the bucket, but I didn't know. Yeah. I didn't see any English. <laughs> what what'd you think? What'd you, how'd you feel about Because that's an interesting era to go to Beijing. Well, it was like before, I think it was before the Olympics, the air was terrible. Yeah. But, 
But what was interesting is I'd never seen so many different bicycle type of vehicles in my life. And I, you know, and just people were getting, you know, shaves and haircuts on the street. They were selling animals on the street. Every, there was people you know, all over the place doing odd things. But I think the thing that <laughs> seemed to impress me the most was how many peculiar vehicles there were. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're like they're like half cars. You know, they yeah. were half cars. And like, I'm like, did they bootleg Toyotas? And they're like, no, these are like specific <laughs> models they make for the Chinese market that are like three quarters of what your car would be, you know? It was it was fascinating to me because I knew nothing about it. And I and I in Hong Kong was was really kind of exciting and stunning. But that was the only the only two places I went and only got around a little bit. But uh, I, I always found it fascinating. But I don't know. Anything. I, I also like get hooked, hung, hung up on food. I was surprised how many different types of dried plum there are. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dried. did you like the dried plum? I tried one that was sour. It was OK. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I like the ones that are plumper plums. They have the really dried, wilted ones. Like they look like yeah. old balls, like yeah. dusty old balls. Those are not good. But the plumper <laughs> plums, they're pretty good. They're pretty good. It's really funny. I, I used to do a bit about about Chinese groceries and stuff. Only, you know, but I don't know if it, how 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 long how, if it aged well. I can't quite remember. It was uh, it was it was about because it was primarily from walking around New York and walking around Chinatown and just spending a lot of time at those markets downtown in Chinatown, just looking at things, going, "What the fuck is that? Is that a rock? <laughs> is it a dried clam? <laughs> is it a mushroom? What the fuck is that?" And then, and then uh, you know, and then I did this thing about how, like, since China's been around for so long, Chinese as a civilization, yeah. they're, they're going to get around to eating everything. So eventually, <laughs> and eventually America is going to look like a Chinese market. You know, it's going to be right? crazy. Yeah. And I think the idea was that eventually because of environmental damage, that all that's going to be left in the ocean is like prehistoric, toxic je- algae and jellyfish. And and I said, uh, I think the punchline was the Chinese are really the only ones that know how to prepare that stuff properly. <laughs> so. <laughs> it's so good honestly sweet and sour works with anything it's like not like the goopy sweet and sour but like seaweed it's just the way we cook seaweed it's like sugar and vinegar and sesame oil you know it works i I guess you could probably cook anything like that yeah it worked it literally i've never met anything that it didn't work on like vinegar sugar and sesame oil (laughs) crazy but i thought that what was great about the movie and i think going back to your life was that the struggle for identity as, as an American Asian person is uh, is is tough because of the judgment and the box that you're put in just by being Asian, right? But uh, but I thought what was beautiful about the movie and probably about your life is that in the midst of all this sort of urban insanity and teenage stuff and expectation from parents, there were a few very specific disciplines and rituals that were just almost second nature to the character. And I imagine to you as well mm-hmm. that you grew up with, whether it was the tea ritual or, or the uh, uh, asking for forgiveness ritual or the, the sort of uh, un, unflailing respect for parents, no matter what. Yeah. I'm really glad you noticed that because those are the things that are second nature that are really important that the grandparents and parents told us like, look, you're an American kid. We can't do anything about that. You're probably going to forget 4,999 years of Chinese culture. But if Uh there's a few things you remember, remember to like, you know, respect your ancestors, remember to respect your elders, you know, remember to do these things on Chinese new year. And there are things that 
you know, because sometimes you get insecure, like, man, am I Chinese enough? Am I doing justice to my ancestors? But I love when like Chinese New Year comes around because I'm like, I know what to do on this day, you know, and food also became a huge thing to me because it wasn't just that I love food, but it was that it was this symbol and connection to where I came from. And it was something I could do and make that my friends in America appreciated as well. What do you do on New Year's? Well, on New Year's, you know, you got to wear red underwear the night before <laughs> to ward off bad luck. So, you know, really? <clears throat> no evil spirits touch your goodies. No, but like, no, yeah, you got to wear red underwear. And yeah. then um, you open up your doors, open up your windows, yeah, weep out the bad luck, welcome in the good luck. And then, um, you know, I, I always pray to my ancestors, you make an offering. Um, but the way I pray is really just to them, not to like a God, but I just, I bow and and I kneel down and I start to talk to them and I just miss them. Like my grandparents, I just, I just pretend like they're here. Mm. And then I will, I will just start to prepare dinner. And and one of the big ones is a, a whole fish steamed with the head on and everything so that the luck comes in the mouth of the fish. And then you eat, eat the luck is, is the uh-huh. symbolism. With um, like with, with ginger and scallions. Yeah, exactly. That yeah. one, it's classic, really good. Yeah a Shanghai steamed fish. And then, you know, I'll make dumplings and I usually like to do Napa with pork and they symbolize mm. like money. Cause they're like nuggets. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, you'll want to do like a whole roasted poultry is like symbolizing family. And so we ha- have all of these things. And, you know, the oldest person that comes to dinner has to give everyone money in a red envelope. So, you know, uh, <laughs> my, my friend this year, Will was the oldest one by two weeks. So yeah. he had to give everybody a few bucks. And it was funny, it was, you know, this, my, my guy, my guy from Harlem is the one like giving out the money at Chinese New Year this year. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> but it wasn't always like, you, you know what, I, what really s- stuck with me in terms of the, the, the characterization, the, the main guy was not just being up against New York or, or up against America or fighting with parents, but that the struggle of of the perceived um like it, it it felt to me that that a struggle that character had and maybe you relate to it as well was it just by nature of being a chinese man in the context of american culture there was a feeling of emasculation yes absolutely i just since i was born i feel like i had begun to be emasculated from from day one and, and, it may, and it feels like there was that was the the foundation of the chip on your fucking shoulder, buddy. Yeah, it it actually <laughs> it really is. And and I wanted to just be like as emotionally naked as possible, and and be out there with it because I think it makes it easier for other kids, you know, that are going through. What in something. the movie you mean? Um, yeah, in or the just movie in life and in life, like the kids watching. I feel like an Asian kid watching, be like, oh, huh. I feel understood. I feel seen. Maybe I don't got to be so mad about this anymore. Well, yeah, because like I started to think about the models that Americans have for for like, you know, for Asian, you know, machismo for years. Yeah. You just, you know, you all you're dealing with is Bruce Lee, for fuck's sake, for yeah. decades. And then everybody else is what is is like in the movie, like you said, like a math guy or the cleaner or whatever. You know, that there's no there's no spectrum of Asian masculinity in American culture. 
No, there's not. And then I remember being a kid and watching like Chow Yun Fat and Replacement Killers or Jet Li. And I'm like, they rescued the girl and they didn't get a kiss. They like nobody liked like what's going on? Like they got their, their sex appeal is just invisible. And I was right. like, I would like to use my penis one day, you know, <laughs> <laughs> someday that'll happen. That was yeah. a very awkward scene in the movie, by the way. Yeah, the way that. Yeah. Yeah, I like I don't I don't know if that's what happened for you, but I'd never seen it talk about so uh, talked about so plainly. Like there was no yeah. there was no foreplay. It was just sort of like I don't know if this is gonna work. You know, <laughs> you know I'll, I'll yeah. tell you a funny story, Mark. It I had that wasn't what my first experience was like because yeah. the first time I was with a woman, she was she was an Asian woman, and well, actually no, I was very nervous. I, I will have to admit this. Actually, now that I think about it, yeah, the first time I was intimate with a woman, it wasn't sex, but she had the force me to kiss her because I was so nervous. She yeah. took the keys to my to my room and she put them down her shirt and she said, you need to come get these keys. And I had got her friend had given me a talk. She's like, my friend likes you. You said you liked her. You guys are together now because this was like ninth grade. She's yeah. like, you don't hold her hand. You haven't kissed her. What are you what are you doing? So they took my keys and put them down her shirt. And then I was like, okay, now now I got to do stuff, but it was like, yeah. I was I was so fucking awkward because <laughs> uh, I had read this article in Maxim magazine, right? Oh no, see that'll fuck you up. You know, it if you read the article up. or you see the porno movie, it's over. Yeah, Maxim has ruined every child, I think, in in this world. But based, I was in the group. My mom was buying groceries and reading Maxim, and they had this this like pictorial graph, and like it was by race, penis size. And, you know, like people from this continent are this big, people from this continent. And at the bottom was Asian. I'm like, oh, my. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. This is terrible. And I think right above us was like Irish, which I, I thought was hilarious. And uh, I was like, shit. So I went home and I just opened up like a children's bank account at Washington Mutual. Right. Yeah. And right. in the in the pouch, they give you like the pouch from the bank and a few coins. And, yeah. and one of the things was a ruler. The yeah. Washington Mutual rule. So I get my dick hard and I fucking measure the thing. I'm like, oh shit, I, yeah. I'm better than Irish. Yeah. <laughs> I was dying, but I was I was so proud of myself. But I still was just like, that's how much the emasculation of Asian men really affected me growing up. I was like, man, I I might be garbage, but um, it's so funny. What's interesting though is like it took one article, dude. One article that was probably pseudoscience, yeah. You know, but it's like if you see that shit at too young of, of an age, especially if it's about your dick, you're fucked for years. I mean, yeah. you're like you know, it's gonna fuck you up for it. Just rewires your brain. Yeah, it was so funny. And then this this, this girl I'm friends with was like, you know, it would be really funny for the movie when you do merch. I'm like, what? She's like, you should sell boogie rulers. I'm like, get out of here. <laughs> like, you know, that would be too crazy. You have every kid in Chinatown measuring their dicks. It's <laughs> so, so funny, though, that, that that was based on uh, on a true story. Because it felt like that, where you're like, I measured it. It's too weird to not think about it. You know what I mean? We like, all you, measured it. You got to measure yeah. it. And then you're like, where do I measure it from the top or the base? Or like, how do I get the most out of this? Yeah. Yeah. And then you figure out shaving and you're like, look, it looks like oh, I just really? gained two inches shaving yeah, this fucking inch. jungle. Easy. Two inches. Easy. I'm huge. And then if you lose weight, you're bigger. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But when you uh, like, when did your father get into the restaurant business? How old were you? I was about 10 years old. 
nine or 10 years old when my dad got in the restaurant business and it was pretty tough. But he wasn't a chef. He was just a running. He was a manager, right? Or what? Yeah, he was a manager at my grandfather's furniture store. But right. my grandfather had uh, pancreas cancer and uh, oh. ended up very, very painful, ended up taking his life. And uh, really? that, yeah, he took his own life. And uh, to, you know, when he was about dead, when he almost when he was sick, he, he decided to opt for that. Towards the end, yeah, towards the end, I think he saw there was no light at the end of the tunnel. And obviously, huh. I didn't get to talk to him about it. So I don't want to put words in his mouth, but that's what happened. Yeah. And I was only six and some for some reason, my mom told me. Yeah. And I remember my mom telling me and I was like, why did you tell me this? Yeah. You know, yeah. and the older I've gotten, I, I'm pretty glad my mom told me. It was a very formative moment in my life. And it, 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 my life totally changed then. You know, like when people talk about like a moment where your life changed. Yeah. I, I changed at six because I was so, I, I loved my grandpa and it made me realize how fragile life was. And also that it may suck so bad you want out, you know? Right. right. <laughs> and, yeah. And, and my grandpa was someone that I really respected. Yeah. And, I was never like, oh, you're weak. You left us. I was like, no, he he made a choice. And I, I'm not a proponent of it. I, I would never. What I'm saying is my feeling, not to get anyone else to. Sure. To of course. Anything. Of course. But uh, that was a huge realization as a six-year-old because everyone else is just like, life is, you know, when you're a kid, they just want, life is beautiful. Life's amazing. Everything's What's great. That I'm fun. Like, yeah. And I was very early on, I realized, no, it's it's not always great. And you live for the good moments, but a lot of right. it is terrible and, and you're waiting. So um, then the furniture business fell apart. There was a lot of friction between the family, the aunts and uncles, and I, I don't like to get involved in it, but the story happens. My dad ends up leaving. Um, my mom stays with me and my three brothers in Virginia. And we don't know if our parents are going to stay together or what's going on. Um, because my mom's family wanted her to stay, but my dad left. My dad became a cook at Steak and Ale and LNN Seafood. And he, he just learned how to do it. And he was so funny. He was like, American food's so easy. It's salt and pepper, boom. Salt and pepper, boom. And he's like, this shit's easy. So he stole a couple menus and a couple recipes. And then he opened up his own restaurant called Atlantic Bay Seafood. He worked down at Steak and Ale, huh? I remember that. It's a chain. Yeah, steak and Ale, LNNC, good chains. And, and he yeah. was just working there. And uh, at that time, there was a boom in Florida because Disney, everyone like around Disney, they needed um, restaurants for tourists right. and the people that were in the service industry. So in that area where the Florida project is, that's where our family's restaurant opened up by those motels. And um, you ever seen that documentary about Celebration Florida that like yeah. super straight Atlantic Bay Seafood was right across the street from it when they built it? Yeah, it, we were there before they built it. And then right. they came in and it changed the neighborhood. And then we lost our restaurant. You know, it's crazy. But that strip used to be just gift shops and really weird motels. So your dad had a successful restaurant for several years? He did. He had a very successful restaurant. He At first, it was Atlantic Bay Seafood. And um, he got that lease. Basically, he got the lease for free. They were like, you can have a year free of lease. You open the restaurant and then you start paying the second year because they just needed to get people in. 
Yeah. And then um, from that success, he opened another restaurant, Cattleman Steakhouse down the road. And he just went boom, boom, boom. And he kept opening these restaurants until they started going to shit. And then he sold them to Hooters. <laughs> so that's what, and Cattleman's is, that's the name of the one in the show, isn't it? Yeah. Yep. Cattleman Steakhouse. Yep. So when did you guys go to Florida as a family? Did you all go down there? Is that what happened? Yeah, it, around nine or ten. I just remember they pulled me out of school in second grade. So your parents, sta- your parents stayed together. They stayed together. Uh, oh, okay. I don't know if they should have, but they did. <laughs> yeah. And they're still together, and they love each other now. You know. Uh, yeah. I don't think they did for a while, but they love each other now. Yeah. So you got you you moved down there when you were like nine or ten. Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. And then and then you were there for all your uh, growing up in orlando yep and like so in the movie so your mom your mom is the fortune teller yeah my mom's the fortune teller yeah and you're the uncle Mm -hmm. yeah your mom did a good job but like how much of that was so was the tension between your parents similar to that uh as those characters in the film yeah it was actually toned down for the film because they're in the original there's quite a few scenes of the parents actually well, there was one or two scenes of the parents hitting each other yeah, and then the dad hitting the son. But, you know, the movie's already quite difficult for non-Asians, non-urban people to access. The studio was like, look, you can only push this so far. I know you want authenticity. We know you want it like your life, but this is going to be very difficult for audiences. So I said, OK, I don't necessarily need people to see that. And I don't want to be a proponent of that. So um, we toned it down. Oh, I see. So to maintain empathy for the characters yeah you couldn't uh have them really hitting each other yeah and i i actually this is one of those times where i think the studio was right you know yeah because i know that you know during the making the original uh series uh, the tv show i read that letter that you wrote about you know yeah. trying to maintain the integrity of your story yeah, in the face of the homogenization and status quo of uh, of uh, American family television, yeah, uh, was was uh, a plight a plight that you had to deal with. Yeah, no, it, that was really tough because they went so far, and, and you know we we're both quite connected to that pilot episode because you know Lynn Lynn did yeah. it, and that that's my favorite episode. It's the only episode I stand by and I enjoy and. Uh, I learned quite a lot because I, I felt like that episode really threaded the needle on the pain and struggle of the kid while also still being entertaining for most audiences. And uh, I, I really loved that episode. That one was the quite first special. episode. And then, well, how, how did you, uh, how, what was your relationship with Lynn like? Man, she was the only one that was nice to me in the leadership position, to be honest. Um, yeah. You know, Melvin was, Melvin was nice as well, but not, it was different. Melvin's you know, the, like, uh, he's the writer. He was a producer. Mel, producer. Melvin, I have to say Melvin, Melvin was nice to me, but his hands were tied, you know, but Lynn really understood my pain with it. Yeah. She really went out of her way to just ask me like how I felt. Cause I would speak, she would see, I would speak up sometimes at like a table read or I'd speak up in a meeting and I was immediately just shut down. And there was, it was kind of like wink, wink, Melvin, get him out of the room or, get him to stop talking. And Melvin yeah. would text me like, Hey, take it easy. You know? Right. And Lynn would actually come to video village and, and talk to me and be like, what'd you think about that? Eddie? Oh, uh, you know, this, that, and it wasn't cursory either. She could really tell that 
there was stuff in here in, in my heart that would probably help with the episode. And it meant the world to me. And my best friend would come with me to set and he's like, man, she's a pretty incredible woman. And, and um, people will ask me too, like, you've never directed. How did you like learn to do this? And I said, I watched a lot of movies and, and I honestly, I watched Lynn Shelton, you know, cause <laughs> yeah. you watch somebody do it once you can do it. Yeah. You know, like you watch more people more times, you probably do it better. But I learned from Lynn that cause I had fought for everything in my life and pushed really hard but I learned from watching Lynn that kindness can get the same result because mm. there was a lot of anxiety on that pilot for fresh off the boat. Randall was anxious. He didn't know how it would be representing Asian America, how it would be received. You yeah. know, Constance, when we began, wasn't that in touch with her Asian identity. There were a lot of things we were all juggling for good reason, because we never had representation before. And all of us were fighting this thing. And Lynn's kindness and empathy and perspective really at least got me through it. And I watched her work with actors and she would approach each one differently, but with the same level of kindness. And that was a very special thing to watch. And I tried to replicate it as well as I could in my own way. That's the, that's the best thing to learn from her because that was her gift, you know? Yeah. It's a funny thing is when you don't pose a threat to people and they let their guard down, it is incredible what they'll reveal. <laughs> when right. you tell and them to be revealing and you push them, they're like, you know? Right, right. And then and that brings out the best in the uh, the sort of interaction with the other actors and everything else. Yeah, that's uh, that's great. That's nice that you learned that stuff from her. So when you say that, you know, you fought for everything. I mean, it wasn't I mean, it seems like it took you a while to even land on cooking, you know, let alone yeah. writing and directing a, a movie like, you know, it's almost Jews are the same way immigration wise was that there's this pressure to to sort of do better than your parents and to do whatever is necessary to succeed in a way that is stable and uh and and moves the family forward and moves you forward and it seems that in asian culture that pressure is almost unbearable yeah um i think we do have in common um generational trauma and this feeling that we don't have a home you know because all of us have had to flee and we've moved around and it's very much about survival and it's different for Americans because, you know, many Americans have had family here in this country for multiple generations. And it's like, yeah, we're all from the Valley. We're all from right. New York. We're like, right. uh, well, I don't like my parents are from my grandparents are from this country. My parents are from this country. And then I ended up here. And there is this immense pressure to just survive. I think mm. that is the mentality. And we're expected to follow the rules and, we're not expected to excel or be different or be great. It's just, just be a number and just survive. Really? That's what you grew up with? Because I guess like, you know, on, in, in the movie, the, the father sort of, uh, he's a bookmaker, right? He's sort of a, a gambler. He's, he's done prison time, right? Yeah. In the movie. So this, it's very interesting you bring this up is because my mother is, is uh, my mother always felt special because she was, it was, it was very weird. 
my mom was the most conservative and just like the mom in the movie did not want the kid to stray. But my mom's belief in herself inspired me. And I don't even think she realized it, but my mom was uh, like, believe the number one student at the number one women's high school in Taiwan, the most competitive high school to test into like Stuyvesant in New York for women was Bayinu. And my mom was like the number one student there. When she came to America for her senior year of high school, she was the salutatorian and did not speak English. Huh. And I asked my mother once, how did you learn to speak English? She said, well, I watched I Love Lucy. I really liked I Love Lucy, but I also <laughs> just used my brain. I got the yellow pages and I started to cold call every number and speak English to them. Yeah. <laughs> She's like every, a lot of people hung up on me, but then sometimes people would talk to me and that's how I learned English. And I was like, that is insane. And, and so not the typical story you hear of parents. She, she, you, she was very wily and my mom would give me advice that she would not take herself. And it was from observing my mother that I learned to be wily. And even in the film, the mom is the one with the plan. And it's she's the one that finds this kind of wormhole for him to make money and succeed and get out of this family. Um, the dad really loves him and believes in him. My dad, I, my dad beat the shit out of me, but for some reason I knew he loved me. Because in the moments where we got to hang out, yeah. I saw him smile. I saw him look at me with fondness and I just knew he loved me. And it makes me sad to say, cause he didn't say it, but I knew it. And my mom would say it, but I felt like it was an apology, you know? Oh, I, I love you. I love, oh, baby. I love, you know, like, it was like, it, if I finally spoke up being like, mom, I, I'm about to break because there were times where I just cracked. Because of the tension and the abuse? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, you know, um, <clears throat> there, you know, cause my mom would run away from home and bring me with her cause I was the oldest one. And also cause my dad would hit, hit me, you know? Yeah, and her too? Yeah, so mm. she'd run away from home and we'd stay at the Red Roof Inn. And it was like when my mom hit bottom, she'd tell me she loved me. And, and she would also, she would put this pressure on me that I don't resent her for, but was very tough to carry, which she would say, you know, make something of yourself, make something of your life so that mom's life's not for nothing. And that was really hard. You know, um, I, I think that's why I have so much trouble with Fresh Off the Boat. You know what I mean? Because it's like, it's funny and the parents get along and, you know, it's, but I, my mom literally was like, my hopes and dreams are in you, you know? Yeah, yeah. So. And, then, and, and, and she obviously felt compelled to protect you, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and I felt like my mom took the abuse from me. And in the end, it wasn't true. But that's how I felt as a kid. What, what, when you look back on it now or, or, or when you deal with, you know, the behavior of your father, wh where was it coming from? He wasn't like an alcoholic or anything. Do you, do you... No, <clears throat> I think it's uh, at the risk of upsetting an entire country of people. I, I do think it's cultural. Yeah. You know, 
I, cause I, when I lived in Taiwan, I met a lot of kids, a lot of kids like me who came from similar families. And they were like, look, man, most of, if you weren't in the government and your parent or your parents weren't wealthy or business people, they were street gang people. They were street dudes, a lot of them. And because we were a country under martial law for, I think almost 30 years, maybe over, over, it was actually over 30 years. We were under martial law and there were a lot of very poor people coming from China to Taiwan and they ended up in street gangs. And um, that's the culture. And my dad, I love my dad. And, and I know it's very hard for like an American audience to understand. And it's tough to parse through because they're like, this guy sounds like a monster. But my dad had it tough too, you know, like he was in it, he was in a, you know, he was doing that stuff. And he told me a story when he was 12, they used to have to wait three hours to get on the bus back home from school. And everyone would line up and just wait to get on the bus. And one day him and his friends were like, you know, I don't, I don't want to wait three hours in line. Let's go play basketball and just be the last guys on the bus. I'm like, all right, cool. So they went, they played basketball and yeah. they, they came back. And the crossing guard was like, you guys weren't standing in line for three hours. And my dad's like, yeah, why would we stand in line for three hours? And he's like, I'm telling your parents. They told the school. They told the parents. Of course, my dad got disciplined at home. You know? Yeah. So my dad went to school the next day with a knife and shanked the kid in his leg and just walked away. He waited three hours in line, got to the front of the line, shanked the kid, and got kicked out of school. And then he was like in night school with all the other bad kids. And that was it. Oh my God. Right. And I was like, you're 12. He's like, yeah, I, I didn't like being hit at home and I didn't like being snitched on. And <laughs> that's, that's just, the, you know, like that's, that's when I start to understand my dad, that's but that's the core also, of yeah, the, the world he grew up in. Yeah. And, and when he brought me back, like he got a lot of respect in the neighborhood, like everyone in the neighborhood selling food, like remembered my dad and, <laughs> He when has he brought a lot you back of, where? To the street he grew up on. And now oh, really? it's like a tourist place. It's the most famous Ding Tai. It's called Yongkangjie. But back in the day, before Ding Tai Fung was like crazy famous, it was like a street that a lot of kids would hang out in the park. And they were, they were tough kids. So I remember eating noodles on that street from a vendor in the early 90s. He brought me back. And the guy's like, your dad, when my dad went to the bathroom, he's like, your dad ran this neighborhood. This was his neighborhood. <laughs> and I was like, what? And he's like, yeah. One time these guys chased him down here. Yeah. And we were back to back with cleavers fighting these guys off. And, and I'm 12 right. and I'm like, you got cleavers. So my dad was slicing people. He's like, we were fighting. And it was that it was just always this weird, mysterious <laughs> thing. Like they would never say what they did. Right. And I I remember too, like I was maybe 15, a guy showed up at my house one Christmas, dropped an AK-47 on the dinner table, said Merry Christmas to my dad, and a huge scar down his face. And I was just like, I don't know what the fuck my dad was doing in Taiwan, you know? But it <laughs> yeah. started to make sense why he was the way he was in our house. And he was just hit a lot growing up. Yeah, but also, like, I have to assume that whatever his status was in that world, which w seemed to be of some recognition, 
that, you know, then, you know, coming to America and, and learning this hustle, working in a furniture store, and then figuring out how to run restaurants, and then losing restaurants. I, I don't know how it all went with him financially, but, you know, it, it is, it's a different game here, right? And yes. there must have been some disappointment or something. Yes, you nailed it. When he was in Taiwan, even though he didn't have money, he was the man. You know, right. respect. And yeah. that's a big thing to somebody. Yeah. And he came to America and he told me a story. Um, and it's very similar to something that happened to Pop Smoke and Pop, you know, but my dad was a bartender at a restaurant and he made these guys Manhattans. Uh, a yeah. few white guys ordered, no, a few guy, white guys ordered martinis. They ordered right. martinis. And my dad didn't know which garnish to put in it. So he dropped a few cherries and thought it looked good and brought the martinis with cherries and yeah. even i'll speak on behalf of the white guys i get a martini with the cherry i'm gonna fucking laugh at you i'm gonna what the right f- what, are you, what are you doing yeah. and they laughed at him and kind of like threw the drinks back at him and they're like yo we need olives like they're supposed to be olives so my dad said he got really mad and got the olives and came back and threw them at the guys and um he was like i never wanted to be embarrassed like that again you know and yeah and it i think it really affected my father but most of the fights at home were because my dad, I think, was down on himself. And, and my mom would really yell at him things like, you're a loser. You know, like, I don't know how you're going to raise three kids. We got no money. And, you know, she would really go at him. And I would tell her to stop, but she wouldn't stop. And it just, yeah. it was it was fucking nuts, Mark. I can't believe I'm telling you all this. I, I've, I've always kind of sidestepped a lot of this, but. Now that the movie's out, I'm just like, fuck sides. I'm done sidestep. My parents are in China. They're never going to hear this. And they know I love them, which is cool because we're good now. You know, like when you're good, you can talk about it. They're not, I don't think right. they're, they're embarrassed because they know, they know why it happened and they've worked on it and they love each other, you know? And also they're, you know, at this point, you know, you're a grown ass man. They're probably proud of you. They know that, you know, you know, you can make choices on your own. And if they want to remain in contact with you, they got to behave themselves. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really true. And they want, they want to have a real relationship with me. So over the last, since we finished the movie, we've really had some very good conversations about what happened and where we oh, stand. Really? Yeah. My it mom took that long. It took that long. Um, they watched the movie and they sat there and they didn't say anything for 30 seconds to a minute after. Yeah. And my dad just said, I'm proud of you. You, uh, he said, uh, I see myself in this. I do. He said, I see myself in this and you understand me. And my mom didn't say that, but she said, I'm proud of you. This is a phenomenal film. She was, she was just like, I I love the film. She didn't engage the personal as much, Uh but she was like, it's, it's really good. I'm, this is an insane accomplishment, you know? Wow. She was proud of me in terms of accomplishment. My dad felt very seen as a person because he, I think wanted to know that I knew like he loved me. Yeah. That was really cool. My mom, my mom is so amazing as a woman. I think she sacrificed me loving her or me knowing she loved me for me being successful. Mm. And over that was the the most important thing. 
She wanted me to survive. She didn't want me to be like my dad. (laughs) Yeah. But like at some point, it seems that, were you ever a criminal? Yeah. 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 And it was funny. I asked my mom once, I said, mom, what'd you see in dad? Because I, until the age of 10, I could not believe my mom was with my dad. And when we'd be at the Red Roof Inn, I'd be like, we should just leave. Mom, we should not go back. This is before you had siblings? How many siblings? When did they come? I had two siblings and they didn't like being there either. (laughs) I love my brothers. You know, they were amazing. And I would hide them. I would build forts out of the couch pillows and be like, stay right here. And I would usually go stand by a phone in case my mom would let me call the police. And she never let me call the police. But that's what I did every time. So it was it it was completely dangerous and out of control and terrifying. Yeah, it was very you know what? It was almost exactly like uh, Connie and Carlo in The Godfather. Honestly, that's why I would watch films like that. and be like, oh, it's like home. It was it was like that. Oh, geez. Exactly like that. And well, I'm glad I'm, I'm glad you survived it. That's terrible. It was tough. And yeah, that's why, like, even as a kid, I'd sit there and watch Cassavetes, like Woman Under the Influence. Like, oh, shit, this is this is nice. Other people go through this. You know what I mean? Like, it's so weird. Like when your life is shit, you watch other shit and you're like, oh, this I just rub myself in shit. You know, yeah, but also like it, 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 it's shit that makes you at least know you're not totally alone. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, and but you know, but what? How did you not end up uh, fucked up? I mean, I you, think I'm fucked up. But did you, you go know, through a period though? I mean, I mean, I know you went to law school for a time. Did you finish? You finished law school, right? You know, yeah, I did finish law school. But I think what saved me was I really loved my mother, yeah. and I wanted to save her, and. My response, I never raised a hand to my dad. Um, I ended up fighting. Never. I just took it. My middle brother fought my dad once and and got him. And my dad was very scared of my middle brother because my middle brother got so sick of being hit. He just lifted weights and trained martial arts and got so big. And I think by the time my brother was 16, my dad could not hit him anymore. But I took it till I was about 19. Your brother hit him though? Yeah, my my brother got him one time, you know, not like punched him in the face, but like, I believe my brother pushed him down. I can't remember. And And said, don't fuck with me. It's over. Yeah. Emery gets mad when I don't get the particulars of it correct. But in Emery, in in apology in advance, the the crux is my brother did something physical to my father that made him realize the days of him hitting us were over. Right. I was too pious and I was too respectful of my dad to hit him back. Mm. I just took it. And and you didn't hit other people? You didn't take it out into the world? I did take it out in the world. Um, because when other kids fought me at school, I was like, well, now I can fight. And there was a part of me that was just like, don't fuck with me. Too. I, I went to school for pretty much uh, most of the days, just going like, just everybody leave me alone. Like, just please leave me alone. I just want to do my homework. I want to make my mom proud. I want to get home and I want to watch basketball. You know, like... I just listened to rap music and I played basketball and I, I always like had like one friend all the way until ninth grade. But this was the thing. The thing that saved me was wanting to save my mother. And I had a kid across the street, Warren Nielsen was my best friend I met in fourth uh, when I was 14, ninth grade. And I saw him get hit at home and I saw the shadow of his father hitting him. And then I saw the shadow of his dad making him clean up 
something on the carpet with spot cleaner. And I just saw this man towering over this kid and seeing him that way got me upset and made me feel the same way I felt for my mother. Cause it's hard to pity yourself. It's easier to have empathy for someone else, at least for me. Yeah. And I went up to his window that night. I snuck out of the house and I threw mulch at his window and I said, you all right, dude. And I don't know if anyone had ever asked him and he's like, I'm okay. And he snuck out and we went and we sat on the bridge in our neighborhood and we, we've been best friends ever since I, I talked to him two weeks ago, you know, like, but that kid saved my life because um, I felt less alone. And he was, I mean, it's weird to say about another guy, but I mean, he was like six, one blonde hair, blue eyes, like beautiful kid. Every girl yeah. in school loved this guy. And the tough guys at school liked him too. He's just very, he's the most popular kid at school. I didn't know. I had no idea. Cause I had just moved into the district and I didn't know he was getting hit at home. I became his best friend. And then at school, everybody loved him. And he was like, well, Eddie's my best friend. And everyone was like the fucking Chinese kid, <laughs> you know, he's like, yeah, the Chinese kid's fucking cool. And he kind of brought me into like the cool kid white world, you know, cause I was always friends with the Palestinian kids and the Dominican kids. And, you know, I, I never really had anyone to bring me into like the white circle and be like, yo, yeah, you know, and, and it was Warren, huh? It was Warren. And, and it was like, you know, I, it, it wasn't that I wanted to aspire to, I never wanted to be in that world. I, I was never yeah. welcome, but because Warren was my best friend, I then befriended his friends. And, you know, there was a Persian kid and a native American kid, but I, I you know, it was me and the Persian kid were the darkest ones in the group, you know? Right. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, it was, it was very strange because I didn't really like his friends all through high school, but I just loved Warren. And we were able to share this like secret that we were, we were getting beat up at home. Yeah. And then it turned out all his buddies that were like skater dudes, they were getting hit too. And all the kids that were kind of like the cool kids at school and into like rap music and street, we were all, we were all abused kids to, to a man. And I, I remember one time, one of my buddies, I won't say his name because he's cool with his pops now. We were smoke, we skipped school, we were smoking weed in, in the backyard. And his dad came into the house, ran into the room. We were we were smoking weed in this room, and he just punched his kid in our in the face. And that was the first time all of us activated. Cause we'd all talked about being hit at home. Yeah. And none of us fought back. But seeing our friend get punched in the face by his dad, we jumped in and we held his dad back and the kids started staying with us and staying with other kids. And he started moving around everybody's house and he not, he didn't go home. We were just like, you can't go home, man. Like your dad just punched you in the face, man. Like that's fucking crazy. Yeah. And then everyone kind of left home. And so huh. that was a very crazy time in high school because a few of the kids got emancipated and, and then we weren't going to school. We were just hanging out at the apartments they lived in. And, and then that's when I caught my first charge. And it was, it was just crazy, but that's for what we would watch that. Like, you know, I would watch movies like kids or like guide to recognizing your saints. And those were films we connected with. You know? Right. And, and it's funny to see reviews now because it's, it, it, it definitely, 
I thought the movie would connect with like dominant culture a little more and reviewers like this is a dark fit. This is they're the characters aren't likable. You know, this world's not likable. Like why are the parents together? I'm like, dude, you know, this is how a lot of people's families are. Well, yeah. And I thought it was like a directly, uh, uh, like now that you say those movies, like the way that you worked the camera, you stayed tight on everybody, everything was moving, could feel the sweat on the stuff. You, you know, it's a lot like uh, kids. And, and then also the undercurrent of all those uh, those basketball movies that you grew up with. Yeah, you know? above the rim and things like that, for sure. Yeah, yeah. But like, so it's funny because like, you know, I talked to Jimmy O. Yang, you know, and uh, he's like a hip hop kid too. Like, it's just yeah. interesting that, these some uh, that some of you Asian guys just completely just got into that. Yeah. Well, I I think for me it was just there. Well, it was funny before I got on. I was still listening to like No Doubt and Stone Temple Pilots. You know, like I listen. Yeah. To, I'm a music guy. I listen to everything. But culturally, yeah, I, I gravitated towards black music and gra- black culture because I just saw similarities in the way our families were, and I saw. Sure similarities in our struggle not that our struggle is the same but i could feel you know like when i heard interludes like with tupac and you know people screaming like parents screaming or wives screaming on me against the world i was like well that sounds like my house did you feel like that the the because i don't know how you you got got it together to figure out how to cook but that it seemed like that must have saved your life in some way it did that was the thing so basketball was the thing I got to do with my father that brought us closer. Cooking was the thing I did with my mother that brought us closer. And that connection mattered so much to me that I I just dedicated a lot of my time to those two things. And when I left home, if I was homesick, I missed my mom. I just cook her food. And I was really scared that when I grew up, all the old Chinese people would die and then we wouldn't get to eat it anymore. <laughs> you know, that, that was really the foundation for wanting to cook food, you know? And that sort of made you, uh, that kind of, that's what lets you make your mark on the world. It, it did Mark. It, it, it did. And, and I, I really am so, I'm very thankful to the world for being patient with me and kind of allowing me, or maybe I created the space and allowed myself, but I'm, I'm thankful to the world because without the early customers at Bauhaus, the early people that read fresh off the boat, like I, I never would have had this chance to tell this story. And so I'm, I'm just very thankful. You yeah. Know, and like, you didn't end up in jail. It sounds like you could have at some point. Yeah. yeah. I went a couple times and I got really close <laughs> to fucking my life up fully. And I uh, was able to get it together when I needed to. And that's kind of been the MO of my life is like, I dick around and I, I get upset and I, I flail and but then it's like when it's game time and I know my back's against the wall, I show up. Well, it was a, it was a, it was a fun. It was not fun. It was, a, it was a powerful movie, dude. And you know, it was a, it kind of made me rethink about you know the struggle of somebody, you know, coming up, you know, Asian in the city in America and and you know what that's like. So so I learned something and I was moved by it. Thanks, Mark. I, and thanks for having me on the show, man. I'm, I've honestly been a fan a while and, and I followed you because, you know, Chris Jackson edited Fresh Off the Boat and he he would always talk about you. Oh, yeah. He'd always talk about it. And he'd always say, you got to meet Mark. You got to meet Mark. You, got, you guys are both crazy. <laughs> uh, well, well, let's hang out. Let's get some food when we can. Yeah, I'd love to. Okay, Thank buddy. you so much, man. 
That was Eddie Wong, folks. And the new film, Boogie, which he wrote and directed, is now in theaters and will be available on VOD at the end of the month. And a reminder, if you want a handmade cap mug, just like the ones I give guests, go to brianrjones.com slash shop. Okay? Maybe I ought to get new cap mugs made with uh, the new cats. Maybe we need some Sammy and Buster mugs. That means I got to call Dima and see if he'll do the art again. I don't even know if he does that shit anymore. I guess I could ask. Because sadly, all the cats on those mugs are gone. Those are memorial mugs at this point. But they are the originals. All right? I got Maybe that's the thing to do. I'll ask Brian. Maybe that would be the 10-year thing. Why am I just sitting here thinking out loud? Here's some guitar. Monkey LaFonda. Cat angels everywhere. Cat angels everywhere. Did I say that already? <laughs> 